This is IVP. Deborah Liu is the CEO of Ancestry.com and previously held executive roles at PayPal, eBay, and Facebook. She is the founder of Women in Product, a nonprofit to connect and support women in the product management field. I don't really know what that is, but I can ask her. She is the author of Take Back Your Power, 10 New Roles for Women at Work. And she's an introvert, which is super cool for a CEO. So welcome, Deb, to the disruptors. Thanks for the invitation, Nancy. And so, Deb, I'm just so excited that that you're here and to talk to someone who's a tech person. I was actually thinking as I was prepping and thinking about you and me, even, you know, we don't know each other, but I was thinking we're both Chinese-American and, and I'm an extrovert, you're an introvert, you're, you know, science and tech, and I'm like, I don't know, poetry and art. And, and thinking that it's so cool, right, to be able to say that, you know, we're, we're so kind of opposites, but we're, you know, maybe when people look at us, they might think that we're the same. So I don't know, that was just really kind of something I thought of. <laughs> That's really, I mean, as you meet people, you will find that like you're interwoven in their lives in very different ways. You will, some things will intersect and some things will diverge. And that's what's really cool about the human population and meeting new people. Totally. And yeah. And, and I think that, you know, Asian American women, we, we, in, I study popular culture, you know, we're always stereotyped as one thing, but in fact, we are as different as you and I could be. And I think that's, um, I don't know, just having you as a guest and being able to have this conversation conversation with you. I think this is going to be fun. So um, I was, uh, I read that you talked about in your book that you were told by maybe your mother that you were lucky that your father was content, quote unquote, content to have girls. What? Tell me more about that. You know, it's funny. I grew up in a small town in the South in South Carolina. And, you know, I just remember my mom saying that to me. I was about six, I think at the time. And I just remember thinking, what does it mean being only a girl? You know, and, and my mom pointed out that my dad had seven living brothers and sisters and they all had sons to carry on their family name. And he only had daughters. And I was like, what does it mean only? And I spent many years kind of watching my father and wondering if he was ever disappointed, if he ever considered that he was missing out on something. And he never said. He took us fishing. He taught me how to shoot. We went crabbing and, and shrimping. And, and so we just, you know, he treated us like he would, you know, any other boy or girl. And, and it was really great. And I had such a wonderful childhood with him. And yet part of me always in the back of my mind wondered if he was missing out on something. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I assumed that reading that, that you would have had a different kind of childhood, but you're saying that he did not, he didn't bring it up. It was something that your mother actually brought up, right? Yeah. And it was something she brought up and I don't think she brought it up as a negative thing. She just, she just said, you're really lucky. And for her, it was a blessing that she was never able to give him a son. And she had had a couple miscarriages and seven years of infertility before my sister was born. And so for her, she's like really fortunate. And you know, by the time I was born, she was in her late thirties. At the time, it was pretty rare for people to have kids that late and to be have successful pregnancies. And so, you know, part of it was her regret speaking. And part of it was just, you know, she was saying this is something we should celebrate. And yet I took it very differently. As a child, you hear what your parents say through the eyes of a child, not through now that I, I know coming on the other side, I understand what she's saying. 
Yeah. And she's talking about maybe her own experience, right? Maybe as a daughter, she didn't grow up with that kind of support. I mean, because traditionally that is, I think, in a lot of immigrant cultures, I mean, cultures from other parts of the world, even the United States, I think sometimes, you know, just it's patriarchal still in parts. And, and so I think, yeah, that it's the intergenerational trauma, right? That a lot of people talk about because it's represented in a lot of media now, but that maybe feeling like you broke that in, in your generation. So how many sisters do you have? I have one. I have one older sister. Okay. Yeah. And I, I also, I come from a family of two sisters or I'm sorry, three sisters altogether. And so I, yeah, I, I definitely felt the kind of disappointment of, of, you know, my father, he has, you know, grandchildren that are mostly girls and even that was a sticking point. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, yeah, the gender thing is, but I feel like, oh my gosh, having girls is so wonderful because it's like, we are so we tolerate so much more <laughs> as women. We're long suffering anyway. Well, I do think that, you know, the, the traditional, we grew up in a very traditional home. My mom told me, you know, when your grandfather died and this is her father, he gave an equal share to all seven of his children, which is very rare. And I thought, mm. and my, you know, I was six when my grandfather died. And I thought, why would that be any different? Like what's different about you and my aunts and uncles? I think that for her, it would be perfectly normal if he chose to give a greater share to her brothers. In her mind, it's a blessing to have a father like that. It's a blessing to like have a father like mine. And for her, it's a celebration. Whereas even hearing that as a child, you just wonder like, well, what does it mean? Is there an alternative? And so I think we're taught so many things through what people don't say and what they do say. And reading between the lines, I was wondering, well, that, that says something about me. And I realize now with a lot of grace and a lot of looking back that, you know, these things are not as simple as we think they are because she was reflecting a society that she grew up in and a culture that she grew up in and that her father treated them equally and that I was fortunate that my father did too. Yeah. And I think that as children of immigrants, we really have to put a lot of things together because it's not like we can look to society for those answers because we're in a different society than the ones that are, if we had immigrant parents, you know, that they grew up in. So it's like, like, I feel like I was watching The Farewell. Have you seen that movie about, yeah, so it's a movie where they lie to the grandmother mm -hmm. about having cancer, right? Mm -hmm. And when I saw that movie and my mother, she had cancer and she never told anyone. And I thought that was just something, it was like, she was fearful or something. And when I saw that movie, I was like, oh, there's something cultural in this and not speaking about, you know, diseases that are terminal. And so I, I never knew that, you know, because I didn't have a culture to compare it to until I saw it represented in a movie about Chinese culture. So so I think that we have to, we're, we're placing, we're piecing together a lot of things that our family do or tell us. And it's like, as children of immigrants, it's a, it's a huge puzzle piece that you have to kind of put together from a lot of disjointed experiences. And, you know, the spoiler is Lulu Wang's grandmother is still alive today and has not seen the movie. So they don't know she lied. They lied to her. So I saw an interview with her and I thought that was really fascinating. Yes, yes. And and like, yeah, I wonder how you keep that from her. You know, it's like <laughs> it keep... becomes a worldwide famous movie. That's how do you right. keep that That's from right. your grandmother still? <laughs> Poor grandmother. She's like, you know, I can't watch any more TV or movies ever. <laughs> yeah. So you grew up, like you said, in South Carolina. I also read that your family actually received a lot of racism. Could you tell, talk about what that was like? You know, it's hard to grow up in a place where no one looks like you. 
right? And when we moved to the South, it was less than 1% Asian. And I was probably somebody, one of the first and only people that people had met. I remember somebody said, you're my first first ethnic friend. And I said, what does that mean? And he's like, I've only known people who are white and black and you know, you're know, you different than everybody else. And he's meant it as a compliment. And But there was a lot. I mean, it was a lot growing up in a place where people just brutally bullied you for being different and people bully for many reasons but to you know making fun of the food you bring to school and making fun of the way that you look being really different growing up is very very hard and I just remember the taunts the things that people used to say like you know go back to where you came from like people would come up to us on the streets and say that and it's it seems really shocking when we tell our kids now but I tell my kids we live in California where in our town, I think it's like a third Asian. So, you know, it's, it's, it's so different for them that they can't understand what it's like to grow up being in a different time and place. And I think that that taught me so much resilience and yet gave me so much resentment at the same time. And I had to spend a lot of time really rock breaking through that, which was, I used that resentment and I used it to actually help me accelerate my career, to get to college, to achieve so much. And yet at the same time, it was really hurting me too. Because that chip on my shoulder of I'm going to prove it to them, that I'm better than they think I am, that I'm more than they they assume I am, really hurt me in the long term. And I think it, it was rocket fuel where it can burn you up, but it can also be really powerful. Mm, that's really inspirational. Yeah. And I think a lot of good art and writing comes out of that as well in terms of I love like seeing all the movies and reading all the books from Asian Americans talking about that experience, right, of being kind of marginal and liminal, like you said, being somewhere in between where um, where people don't know where to place us and they tell us to go back to where we came from. And, and of course, a lot of us having been born and grown up here, what does that mean? And what does that mean as a woman of faith, right? Like, where do we, how do we think about our identity uh, vis-a-vis everybody else? So what, tell me about, like, how did you come to faith? Was that, were you born into a believing family? Or was that something you came to later? Yeah, I was born. My parents are Christians. My mom came to America and went to a Christian college. She didn't even know what the differences in colleges. She came to America with almost nothing. Had a place at a college she didn't know. She became a Christian there. And my father became a Christian after meeting her. And so we were raised in a Christian home and it was always a part of our lives. But it doesn't mean that that's without its own challenges. I remember when I was small, my parents went to a Southern Baptist church where we spent many years. And when they they raised their hands to become members. The church didn't accept them as members. And, what? you know, this is a church that sent missionaries to China. Oh they wouldn't gosh. accept a family that was different in their midst. And so we became Presbyterians after that. And we've been Presbyterians. My parents are Presbyterians to this day, my, you know, until my dad passed away. And so, but the Presbyterian church was very welcoming to us. And so my parents continue that faith. They didn't allow that to be a stopping point for their faith. They just went to another denomination and they, started over and built a church community in a different place. And so I think you find your church home, but just because one church isn't the place for you doesn't mean that faith is not right for you. And so that taught me a lot about you can't turn your back from the worst person or thing that happened. You want to say, what is it about this faith that is welcoming and will give us what we're looking for? And you know, we found that in a different church home with a different church community. Wow, that is an amazing story. And that that is a testament to their faith that racists are not going to stop me from pursuing God and a community. I mean, both, I would assume that both communities were largely white in, and so what was the, what do you think made the difference between the two communities? Why did one reject and one accept? 
I don't know, actually, the churches were only a couple miles apart, you know, and, and we, it was, you know, we lived in between and I, I honestly don't know. And, you know, that is a, a faith journey that that church needs to go through and really understand and unpack for themselves. I don't know what the liberations they had, but this is a group of people that sent missionaries and supported missionaries all over the world. And so clearly they have a heart for missions and caring for others, but perhaps they couldn't figure out how to fit a family that didn't look like them in their midst. Hmm. Wow. That's a lot to unpack. I'm like, so I want to go and like, go to that church and ask, <laughs> like, what, like, do you see the hypocrisy? That's what I would say, you know, especially the whole kind of missionary. It's like, you're okay in your country, but you're not okay, quote unquote, in my country. Right. Yeah. And that's what actually this entire kind of season I've been just exploring, like, what does it mean to be Christian, a Christian of color and how do we maintain a faith in a highly polarized society and community, really, right? With with a lot of, I think, this idea of who can be and who isn't a Christian. And a lot of times that that there is that split among among racial lines and political lines. So I don't know how your faith has been challenged or I don't know, what have you been thinking in the, kind of the last five years? I think the biggest thing is if we read the story of Jesus, he was extremely radical. He said to love people who weren't like you, to be meek and turn the other cheek. He said things that would be, today, our church, I think sometimes doesn't read close enough the words Jesus said when he was here. Mm. And I think that we have a responsibility as Christians. I, I remember a, a fellow Christian of mine who I worked with said, we are witnesses every single day. And only sometimes do we use words. And so that was a saying from her own mother, right? And so she said, my mother says this to me all the time. And I realized those words of wisdom from her mother is a reminder that we are a testimony. Every, every action we have, everything we do is a testimony of what we believe. And that testimony does not necessarily use words. Mm, I love that. Yeah, especially since our actions and how we love is so much stronger. I mean, that's how I feel like I came to faith. I came to faith. My family was not Christian. I came to faith on my own, but it was through the love that I experienced from Christians. And certainly the words came after, I feel like, right. Or, or it was like both. It couldn't have been just words. And, and it does feel like today in today's kind of Christianity, we're hearing these words, sometimes hateful, more than we are seeing the actions. I mean, I, there is action. There's obviously action happening, but somehow they're not as loud in this kind of social media saturated world we're in, right? But I would quote the words of Gandhi. There's a story about Gandhi going to a church. And later he said, I would be, I would follow Christ, but but for Christians. They treated him very poorly because he was not from the upper, upper caste, right? Mm. And so, you know, we treat what, how we treat the least of these, as Jesus said, right? How we treat, treat those who have the least is is a testimony to what we believe. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, in your journey as a like incredible CEO and powerful woman in the industries you've been in, I, I was really struck by when you said in an interview, we talk about diversity and inclusiveness, but without belonging, none of that hangs together. I mean, I'm feeling like, I feel like Gandhi <laughs> in the sense that I left my evangelical university because I didn't feel like I, I belonged anymore in terms of my passion for the least amongst us and wanting to fight against injustice. Like I had to hype parts of myself. So 
what is the importance of belonging, both for workplaces, churches, communities? Can you say more about that? You know, belonging is what we seek. Acceptance is what we want. If you look at the the, um, hierarchy of needs, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like food and shelter, absolutely air. Like people want love and belonging and relationship Mm -hmm. and connection most of all. And if you feel like you're always a fish out of water, if you're always feeling like you're different, I know it. You're growing up, I felt that every single day, and I don't want people to feel that every day at work and home at church. Those things are really things where think of your highest moment of alienation. Do you want that for other people every day of their life? Instead, what if we looked at the world differently and sought to embrace each other instead and found a way to actually find comfort and joy in, in each other? I think that that's the biggest thing. So now I'm a DEI consultant um, professionally, and I think about belonging with people who are different from you, right? That's not easy, right? But I think that the trying and the actually like expanding of oneself and one's horizons does then create a new community and growth, right? Within each of the members and as a body. Like, have you been in a place where, because I know that a lot of the places that you've been in as an Asian American woman, you've been like the one and only in a lot of spaces. How do you create that belonging when you have been so kind of, you know, the singular person in the room? I have to turn it on myself. And I was at a CEO conference once and I was the only woman of color out of 200 people in that room. And I thought, you know, we can do better than this. I was, it was like 10% women, as most CEO conferences are, I suspect. And I realized, well, first I'm here, which means that next year, maybe there'll be two, three, four people like me, because before maybe there were none. And beyond that, how do we think about long-term what it is that we're, are, are we creating belonging so that the next person can come and the next person? And I think that that's incredibly important, which is, you often the only person, but what if you made it comfortable for the next person and blaze the trail? It's not easy to be the first, but it opens the opportunity for the next 10, 20, 30 people, as long as you're in the room. And so I seek to you know, say, yes, I am who I am and I represent what I represent, but I also want to open the door to say there's more opportunities to come. Mm, I love that. So the, the kind of responsibility that one has if they are the first, right? The trailblazer. It's to create more trails for people after you. And it's so many people have blazed those trails for us. You know, we would not be here for the women 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when Mm -hmm. women were not welcome in the same space as we are today, even. And 60, 70 years ago, when they weren't accepted into the elite colleges. And you think about the women who blazed those trails. Like today, women get more of the college degrees and they have more of the professional jobs. And we have that opportunity to blaze for the next generation. Yes, there's still work to do, but we also have come a long way in the last few decades. And we have so many incredible women to thank for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Even if we are the first, we're not the first ever. Right. And, and certainly, yeah, I think that the civil rights movement, and I think, I think a lot of times they're like, oh my gosh, there aren't any Asian American civil rights leaders or something, but they forget the history. And this is part of like, we don't learn enough about ethnic studies and history and our own histories, especially if we are children of immigrants, our parents are not necessarily passing that knowledge along for us. And we have to kind of find that and you have children of your own, um, how do you see, like, and, and, I, and I have to say, I, I was tongue in cheek about us being opposites, but I noticed that you have 
a comic book about your <laughs> adventures as a mom. Yes. So you draw those, I assume. So I actually have an artist. I, I okay. design them, but I draw very slowly. And so I actually have an artist do it. But mommyschool.net, I post comic strips about the kids. I post on a bunch of social media around the funny things they say. They The kids do approve what I write. I read it to them. Um, and so they are they're very fair game on what we do together. Yeah. And so what do you think about, you mentioned about opening opening opportunities for people after us. So as a mom, like, how do you see this world different? Or are we still facing some of the same challenges then for the next generation? Well, first, I think moms, you know, 70% of parents with kids under 18 at home are actually in the workforce. And of Mm -hmm. coupled households, the um, opposite, I think, opposite gender households, um, the woman out makes the man 40% of the time. And so we've made a long, we've made long strides and, and I think motherhood has changed a lot. But I think the stereotypes and unconscious bias still exist. Like motherhood bias is one of the most difficult biases. I experienced that myself for the six years between when I was pregnant with my son and when I had my youngest, my youngest daughter. I didn't, not only did I not get promoted, I, I took a, I took a step back to kind of pursue, but I just felt really stuck for about six years. And that's just the reality of, you know, motherhood. There's not a lot of support for that. And at the same time, you know, if you actually signal that you're a mother, like say you you say you're a PTA, you're less likely to get hired. And if you're hired, you're less likely to make, you're offered much less money because they think you're less devoted to your job. So these things are real, like studies have shown this, and it's just something that we have to keep in mind. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we, we stop working, we stop pushing for what we want, but there's still a stigma, right? A lot of people will ask me, oh, so who takes care of your kids while you're at work? My, and I told my husband when someone asked me that recently, and he's like, no one has ever asked. Our son is six, our oldest is 16. He's like, no one has ever asked me in 16 years who takes care of the kids. And he works too, um, you know? And so, yeah. you know, it's it's one of those things where each time I was pregnant, they asked me, are you going to come back to work after you give birth? And he's like, no one ever asked me that either. <laughs> and so there's a definite stigma. And by the way, it's a lot of women who asked, not men. Mm. So I don't know. I think we still judge moms and, and women more harshly in a lot of ways in our society. And you feel it that a lot of women will come to me and say, hey, I feel like I'm failing at home and at work. At least if I leave the workforce, I won't be failing at home. And that's mm. hard, right? Because society is judging women for something which is when something goes wrong, you're the you're the home parents. You're the one who has to, you know, they say mothers, I heard this woman say this during COVID, that mothers are the shock absorbers of our society. When something goes wrong, when the kids are home, when, you know, we have to do homeschooling because, you know, everything's virtual. Who's the one who took most of the time off? Who's the one who had to go part-time? Who's the ones, who are the ones that left the workforce? And there's a lot of women because they tended to make less money. They're also the primary caregivers in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's a, a penalty that I definitely, I, I also wrote a book about being mothers and academics and and the kind of, yeah, the, they're least likely to get tenure or promoted to full professor, all these things. And yet there are, like, there are so many gifts, I think, that mothers brought into their workplace. I think there were chapters one of my colleagues wrote, Stephanie Chan, who wrote about the synergy of of like teaching and motherhood, right? And how the the kind of skill sets that we had being mothers were synergistic with those in the classroom. Mm. And and not just kind of like mothering students or anything, but actually creativity and being able to kind of, yeah, tell stories and be able to 
just communicate better, you know, with our students. So how do you find, I mean, actually, I just wanted to ask you, like, how did you get to where you are with three children? Is that right? So how did you overcome the kind of everything we've been talking about in terms of the motherhood penalties and, and the biases and the, the, the questions that we get that are, you know, if we have husbands, what they get, they don't get. Well, I I wrote in chapter eight of my book, Take Back Your Power, 10 New Rules for Women at Work, a story about my husband, which is balance at home is one of the most important things. I opened the chapter with a quote from Sheryl Sandberg, which is the most important career decision you make is who you choose to marry. And it is absolutely true. Your partner either makes your life easier or harder every single day. And, you know, my husband has been so incredible. He is an executive in his own right at tech startups and He has always been my biggest supporter. And this week while I'm traveling, I've been traveling actually out of the last eight weeks. I've traveled seven of the weeks other than Thanksgiving. He's the one who holds down the fort. And he never complains and never, he's the person who just has been an incredible supporter. And you can feel that wind at your back, you know, when you don't have to worry about things because he's taking care of it. We just have a a very complimentary marriage. and, And it's just, he does one thing, I do another. We take care of each other. And we never question each other. The rule is the other person does something, you don't get to complain. And it has made our life so much easier. So he plans all of our vacations, 100% of them. He will send me the itinerary and the tickets. And he's like, just show up here. And we're going to the airport, but you need to pack. And I do all the packing. I take care of all the food and snacks and everything, the kids, and make sure that we eat. And then he does whatever activities he wants to do, which he packs it all in. Four things a day. We're kayaking. We're ziplining. We're hiking. I'm like, you know, I hate the outdoors. He's like, no complaining. And I'm like, that's true. So (laughs) I think you just, you know, you just have a yin and yang. And, and, you know, when it's out of balance, you feel it. And for us, we just have such Mm -hmm. a balanced marriage. And he's such an incredible partner and supporter. I met him when I was 18. And we had no idea what our lives was going to be like. And it's just been an incredible adventure together. Mm, that's wonderful. Yes. Shout out to supportive partners because that is that is the key, really, because if you're going to have, you know, a full family life and and a full professional life, those are those are rare, I think, and and definitely to be cherished. And and I assume that both of you are also people of faith. And is that something we actually that you met at church, a oh, church nice. that his parents helped found, a Raleigh Chinese Christian church. Mm. Oh, in, in South Carolina. In Raleigh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Oh, North Carolina. So I am I my geography sucks. Sorry. <laughs> I went to Duke and you went to UNC and we met at church. So nice. But in, in near where you grew up and and actually a Chinese church there. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in South Carolina and about five hours away I went to Duke, and that's in Raleigh where he grew up. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you okay. for that. Geography lesson. Sorry. Yes, I have a PhD, but I, I probably I, I don't think I ever took a geography class in all of my primary and secondary. Years. I'm a big geography buff. You are. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. See another another way we are absolutely <laughs> different. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, oh, is there a some sort of book or? cultural artifact, whether it's movies or music, whatever that you would recommend for our listeners that, you know, has shaped your faith in some way. You know, it's interesting. There's a couple. One is the purpose-driven life was always like something that was really meaningful to me early on. The five love languages. I read that before. This is back in the day before it became super popular. I read it back <laughs> when we were first dating. And I think that, that has, both of those things have been really transformative to, our, to my relationships with my life and as well as the people around me. 
And I would say more recently, I, I reread the book, The Righteous Mind, why it's really kind of helping people think like why people believe what they believe on the right and left of the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. I actually very much a fan of understanding politics, you know, why we're polarized by Ezra Klein, also an incredible book, forward by Andrew Yang. And so I read a lot of uh, Christian books and, and political books, I guess. Nice. Well, this is the time to read all those because <laughs> there's a lot to unpack in our society right now. So thank you so much, Deb, for your time and just being um, so honest and, and forthright about everything that you've experienced. And just, yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to talk to you. 